Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, those of our children as well. And I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's program, we're going to take a quick look at a number of economic events, the struggle over the abortion issue yet again, and this time over the abortion pills and the profits of the pharma companies that are concerned about it. We're going to talk about a tremendous win by unions in the hotels and motels of suburban New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I'm going to give you an update on what actually happened to wages in the United States during the first year of the Ukraine war, and you're going to see a connection you might not have thought about. And finally, we're going to be talking about that remarkable decision by the Republicans in Tennessee to eject elected Democrats who were peacefully protesting the gun violence of that state. And then we'll be interviewing Ellen Brown, in my opinion, one of the leading experts on banking in the United States, and we'll be lucky to have a really interesting conversation with her. So let's get right to it. A judge in Texas suddenly issued a ruling that the major pill used to induce abortion Mifeprestone, if I've pronounced it rightly, is somehow no longer to be used. He issued a national ban on selling it, putting it in the mail, and so on, claiming that the FDA had not properly vetted its safety, even though the pill has been in use for at least two decades with no major safety problems that the FDA has brought to anyone's attention or claimed to have existed. Before we could blink an eye, literally within hours, first 200, and then by the time I checked it out again, 500 pharmaceutical company executives in this country and their friends in high places, mostly Democratic lawmakers, had issued a national letter denouncing what the Texas judge had done. Quickly again, another judge, this one in Washington State in the West, issued an order literally the opposite of what the judge in Texas had done. So now we have dueling judges, dueling mandates, an enormous public relations campaign by the pharmaceutical industry, all heading to the Supreme Court for some sort of resolution. During the mayhem around all of this, there have been references to the abortion issue, of course, since it's a pill about abortion and to science, and to what science means. And I want to stress here that this struggle has very little to do about abortion and even less to do about science. Those are arguments brought forward by people who have a different agenda, do not tell us what that agenda is, and want us to believe they're concerned either about abortion or about science. Let me explain. What freaks out the pharmaceutical industry is that a judge, under pressure from a political movement, in this case the Texas judge, and the movement is the anti-abortion Christian fundamentalist movement that you're all familiar with. They're freaked out because it's interfering in their profits. Not just their profits from abortion pills, those are important, but they now realize that a judge, pressured by God knows what political movement next, 
can interfere in their business, can take a drug off the market, depriving them of billions of profits because who knows where it comes next, around vaccines, around safe drinking water, around all of the millions of medical uh, inventions that we all rely on one way or another, by prescription, over the counter, you fill it in. They don't want the interference because they're one of the most profitable industries in the United States. And guess what their defense is? Science. You see, the pharmaceutical companies are really committed to science. And if you believe that, I will sell you a piece of a bridge nearby. No, they're not. You know why we know they're not? Well, there's another big scientific issue. You know what it's called? Global warming, climate change. The overwhelming majority of scientists doing the work are telling us we literally have little time left to deal with what is happening to our environment. And where is the pharmaceutical industry on this question of science? Nowhere to be heard. They don't do anything. You know why? They don't want to offend the big companies making money off global warming. The oil companies, the coal companies, the gas companies, you know. So don't tell us you're supporting it because of science. I won't even go into how many shady scientific claims have been made by the drug industry over the years that turned out not to be valid, turned out not to be vetted, turned out not to be reliable. So no, they're not interested in science. And no, they're not interested in abortion. When the Supreme Court made their anti-abortion overthrowing uh, Roe versus Wade, were the pharmaceuticals up there talking about the importance of abortion? No, not abortion, not science. Money, profits, that's what drives them. And then we are left with the question, do we really want our health, physical and mental, to be in the hands of people who literally care less about that than they do about making money? That's not a good way to organize your health system. We ought to have learned the lesson long ago. My next update has to do with the New York and New Jersey hotel worker unions. They won a stunning contract. So stunning, I want to bring it to your attention and draw out the lesson to us. They got the biggest wage increase, get this, in 100 years. Over the last few weeks, 7,000 workers were involved. So we're talking a large group. They got a roughly, on average, increase per hour of $7.50. They got an increase that is larger than the federal minimum wage in this country is. They're going from, on average, $20 an hour to $27 an hour. And for cooks, who are included here in these hotels, $31 an hour on average. Why did they get this? They got it because the unions are in a strong position. They threatened a strike, and they have shown they can deliver on that threat. They know there's a labor shortage, and if they walk out, it will not be easy for those hotels to get people to replace them. For people at the bottom of the chain in workers, there's a lot of demand these days. There are other jobs they can get, and the hotels know it. They also know they've been ripping these workers off for years so that their pay is way too low 
and that there's a built-up anger they're going to have to deal with. And then there's another issue. Hotels need allies in fighting against the Airbnb phenomena. Hotel rooms are being lost to potential buyers of them, you know, tourists and businesses, because they can find an Airbnb that's probably bigger, probably better, and probably cheaper. They've got a real problem. They need allies. And you know who might be an ally for them? Yeah, their own workers, the unions, who might come out and support the hotel because their jobs are also threatened by the Airbnb phenomenon. It's one of those things we call contradictions in capitalism, when the conflicting problems set different groups of workers against each other. Those who have an Airbnb possibility to earn some money versus those whose jobs depend on the hotels. Here's the lesson, though. When employers tell you they can't afford to raise your wages, it'll drive them out of business, something those hotels have been saying for years, don't believe it because it isn't true. Unless you have access to the books of the hotel, you're having to take their word for what they can or cannot afford. And of course, to help their workers, they can't afford it. They don't have the money until they do, like they just proved they do by giving these once in a hundred years wage increases. The workers got it because they stood up strongly, threatened to walk out, wielded the power, took advantage of the situation, and were able to do something for 7,000 families in the New York, New Jersey area that depend on those wages. And all the claims of the employer that they couldn't afford it were shown up for what they were. Nonsense. Now I want to give you a simple statistic, which I took from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the government agency in charge. Here's what happened to wages, average wages in America, from the beginning of the Ukraine war, March 2022, late February, March 2022, to March 2023. That year, how did the working class in America do? Here we go. Average wages, when adjusted for the prices that have been going up, fell by seven-tenths of one percent. Oh. Average wages fell. You could afford to buy less at the end of the first year of the Ukraine war than you could buy at the beginning. The war is costing you. Number two, the average hours worked per week fell nine-tenths of one percent. You know what happened to workers? They got less per hour than they used to when adjusted for prices. And they worked fewer hours per week, which means, you put those two together, 1.6% drop in the real wages of the American working class. It wasn't just the inflation, it was also the war and the focus of the government and the business community on making money off the war, funding and arming the Ukrainians, and so on. Your position on the war is, of course, your choice, your arguments. You're thinking, but do not be misled at imagining that that war doesn't cost you personally. It does. And an honest government would tell you so. So let me come finally to the state of Tennessee. And I want to draw your attention again to the fact that 
there was a, a demonstration involving two members, African-American and one white woman, who protested the horrible shooting at the Christian school that happened in Tennessee, Nashville, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, a few weeks earlier. They were upset about the gun laws of Tennessee, and these three legislators, elected by the people, walked through the legislative chamber and protested peacefully, quietly, singing some songs and making a few statements. For this behavior, the Republican white majority of that body ejected these elected officials. Or to be more careful, they elected the two black men, but the woman, the white woman with them, wasn't ejected in a demonstration that if anyone wondered whether racism was alive and well in America, here's a big fat fact to think about. All right, that's not why I'm bringing it up to you. I want to bring up to you what was said by the, one of the Republican leaders that voted them out, a man named Jason Zachary, a Republican from Knoxville. He said, quote, sound conservative policy has made Tennessee the best state in the union to live, work, and raise a family. Besides the obvious absurdity of this, I want everyone to see something, though. This assertion, and by the way, since the shooting in the Christian school, there's been another shooting in a Walgreens parking lot where an employee of Walgreens shot a pregnant woman who he thought was shoplifting in the parking lot. Tennessee isn't the greatest state in the Union. Many other states are interesting and have their strengths and weaknesses. But the claim that it's the best is an attempt to overwhelm the problems and weaknesses and flaws of a society by simply asserting it's the best around. Don't be fooled. Don't be taken in. It's embarrassing that a serious political leader would say such silly stuff. And that's true whether it's the president or a Tennessee legislator. Stay with us. We'll be right back with our guest, Ellen Brown. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am both proud and honored to have with me today, and for you, both listeners and watchers of this program, a friend of mine that I've worked with on and off for years, but who's a very special, skilled commentator on pretty much everything having to do with banking, money, currency. She's taught me a great deal. So let me introduce to you Ellen Brown. She's an attorney. She's chair of the Public Banking Institute, an institution I would urge you to learn more about. And she's the author of 13 books including particularly The Web of Debt and the book Banking on the People, Democratizing Money in the Digital Age. She also co-hosts a radio program on PRN-FM called It's Our Money. Her 400-plus blog articles are posted at ellenbrown.com. So first of all, Ellen, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Rick. It's great to talk to you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to jump right in because I want, I want my audience to, to get the, the benefits of, of what you have understood. 
in your judgment, how serious, I'll put that word in quotation marks, how serious were the bank collapses of the Silicon Valley Bank, the Signature Bank, and the Credit Suisse in Switzerland, which were the three spectacular collapses of the recent time? Well, my understanding is that all three of them could have been saved <laughs> without going bankrupt. And apparently, that, of course, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were cryptocurrency banks that like on, on ramp, off ramps for cryptocurrencies. The first one to go down was Silvergate Bank. That was the bank of FTX and um, Sam Bankman Freed. So there was obviously something crooked there. Although I think the bank itself hadn't been found guilty of anything. It was really sort of a victim along with the rest of the rest of them. But there was this whole congressional push by several congressional agencies to bring down crypto to prevent any on-ramp, off-ramp. And those were the big crypto banks. And so they all went down. But the problem was, I think they, they the congressional committees, didn't make that they would be triggering a bank run across the country, which is what happened because those banks had unrealized losses that were quite large. They'd had, well, Silicon Valley Bank, of course, was the one that set the pattern. And it had its clients, customers were startup banks that were funded by venture capitalists. So they already had plenty of money. They didn't need loans. They put their money in the bank, but Typically, a bank would then make loans to those same customers, but these customers were already well-funded. So the money went into what they were supposed to do, which is put it into short-term or put it into treasuries, considered zero-risk investments. But there's zero risk if you hold them to maturity. But if you have to cash them out, an interest rate suddenly shoot up by, you know, from 0.25% up to 5%, then those uh, treasuries got seriously devalued because nobody wants the old ones. They want the new ones that pay a lot more interest. So it wasn't just those banks, but there are banks across the country in that position, like big banks, like U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo, things like that, that also were quite, you know, if you look at the books, but they didn't go down. So you could argue, on the one hand, it wasn't serious because the other banks in, in a similar position did not get put into receivership, but those banks triggered a great concern across the country. And now we have to worry about whether to lift the cap on FDIC insurance. I mean, there's all kinds of issues. And um, the problem with Credit Suisse is that it's presumably a big derivatives bank. And since we've got in the 2008-2009 crisis, it was uh, credit default swaps with, that were the derivatives of concern. But now most of the derivatives are interest rate de derivatives. So you figure, you know, if interest rates have shot up, somebody is on the other side of those bets. I understand that what a derivative bank does is it's really the middleman and it tries to sell off the bets on both sides. But if you get stuck with the bets, then somebody's going to go down. So anyway, that was the concern that it's, it is a globally systemically important bank. In other words, if it goes down, it takes down the other globally systemically important banks. So that was the big issue there. But I understand they're actually trying to reverse that sale to UBS, but I don't want to go too far afield. Well, I think, you know, for, for what it, it urges me to ask you this follow-up question. We have a, a global capitalism which can be shaken 
in unexpected ways, leading to unexpected consequences and ramifications. And we are all living in the anxiety of how bad it'll be, how long it'll last. And yet we allow something as fundamental as our global monetary system that we all depend on in myriad ways to be in the hands of people who have a completely different objective. Their objective is to make a private profit for the particular bank they're working for. That strikes me as a crazy way for a community to organize an institution like money and banking it depends on, putting it in the hands of people who have a completely different objective, namely the private profitability of what they're doing. Right. And so that's why we are pushing the public banking model. In other words, banks should be owned by the people and controlled by, well, have a mandate to serve the public interest. In other words, it's not just making sure you put good people in there, but they actually have rules that say you can't invest in certain things and you must do certain other things. And our one and only U.S. model at the moment is the Bank of North Dakota, which the North Dakota banks are actually doing very well. There was an article recently that said, don't worry about North Dakota, our banks are doing fine because the Bank of North Dakota state-owned bank is um, acts as a mini-fed for the state. In fact, they don't have FDIC insurance. The, the Bank of North Dakota doesn't. And 97 or 98% of its deposits come from the state itself. So it's obviously not going to be subject to a banker and it's not going to run on itself. And by law, the state has to put all its money in the state-owned bank. So it can't run. <laughs> so it's got plenty of liquidity. And then it can make loans to this, the local banks. It's, it par- it's required to partner with the local banks, not compete with them. And the profits, of course, go back to the people or they go into the capital pool in order to allow it to make more loans. But anyway, it's all for the public interest. Let me pursue that. I believe most Americans, at least in my experience, were not aware that one of the 50 states has a public bank, that one of the 50 states that's known to be a, quote, conservative state, has a publicly owned and operated bank, and finally, that it's had that bank for more than a century without any of the efforts to undo it, to convert it back into a private banking system. Those efforts have all failed when apparently Republicans and Democrats and rural folk and urban folk all got together and said, no, 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 we prefer a public option. Tell me, in your judgment, why has this been limited to that one state? And is there a movement around to move in the direction of public banking that should be, I would guess, stronger now because of all of the upsets of the private banking system over the last 20 years and indeed going back further? And Well, I'm chairman of the Public Banking Institute, and we were founded in 2011, and we've been working on this for a number of years. But I understand that the suffragettes took 30 years to get the vote for women. So, you know, these things take a while and and we've got numerous groups working on it. I think over 50 groups across the country and we've had numerous bills, but it's very hard to get politicians to change. You know, they don't want to take the risk. But it seems to me that when things fall apart, that's when change happens. Like if you look at 1933, the things that Roosevelt did You could never do that in normal times. But when the economy crashes, 
that's when politicians are ready to say, okay, we need a change. And they look around and they say, right, that, that looks like a better system. So we're hopeful. I mean, not that we're hopeful that the economy collapses, but we do have an alternative that we think is a good one. Well, if I can report to you on the most of the financial press right now around the world is, and I'm talking about conservative, business-oriented, they all now, almost without an exception, expect an economic downturn. They prefer words like downturn to words like crisis or crash or bust or any of the other words that have been used, and there's a, quite a vocabulary. So they all think a, a downturn is coming either in the second half of this year or latest next year. So you may, in fact, have the situation, not that you're in favor of it, but the situation that will enable a movement to change, among other things, a private banking system that is so riven with problems for our society to something better. It shouldn't be all that difficult, or am I missing something? Is, is there something about this that we should acknowledge as an obstacle? Well, I agree that for us, our goal is to get this information out there. Like when things fall apart, you want people to think, well, what about this public banking option? You know, it seems to be working for North Dakota. And we do have states like Tennessee is a conservative state that now has a bill for what they're calling a sovereign state bank, but they're basing it on the Bank of North Dakota. That's their model. I mean, some of the other models are not quite based on the Bank of North Dakota, but it seems to be working out very well for them, and it works for their local banks. Okay, so let me shift. In my reading, and please, if you disagree, let us know. In my reading, banks have gone bust innumerable times in American history. The 19th century is, is full of a phrase I love called bank panics. And I love the use of the word panic because that's pretty much capturing what happens, and it happens over and over again. And when it happens badly, as you've pointed out, that's when you get the quote-unquote reforms. But then it looks like immediately after the reform is proposed, the banks go to work, try to slow it, try to block it, try to... And then if they lose after a long time, having delayed it for decades... Then the minute the thing is passed, they go to work to undermine it, to amend it, to repeal it. You know, like Glass-Steagall is the most famous example, but it's happened on a long, shorter, smaller scale. Is there anything in our system to prevent the banking system, the private banking system, from capturing and therefore distorting the efforts that have been made to regulate them? Well, that is the problem, is big money always manages to come in with their lobbyists and persuade the Congress people that they need their money, so they'd better not shake the boat. Another example of what you cite would be Lincoln's, of course, the American colonists just issued their own money, and then Lincoln reverted to that during the Civil War because he was going to have to borrow at something like 30% interest from the British bankers. So he just started issuing his own money again. But then after the war, the bankers got in there and turned that off. And they also made silver demonetized so you couldn't back your loans with silver. So anyway, it's a, it, is a, it is a progression. And let's see, in the 1930s, there was a Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which allowed the government to rebuild the economy at a time when everybody was broke, the banks were broke, how they did those amazing 
infrastructure developments in the 30s. I mean, they did it by issuing credit. And we could do that again. And they also, that also worked for World War II, but whether we could, and they, of course, it doesn't last forever. Always the bankers manage to step in and change the system. So I'm afraid I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah, I think it needs a, the bigger social change. Ellen, thank you very, very much. It's really interesting. And I hope we can arrange to bring you back because the topic needs more attention than even a, a short interview can do. But my thanks and my best wishes to you and to the work of the Public Banking Institute. And thanks and my best wishes to you too. And to my audience, as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. <laughs>